To honor the reading of God's word, I would invite you to stand for the reading of Psalm 3. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep and wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be upon your people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being our just defender and redeemer. We acknowledge that you are the only one who sustains us from moment to moment, and we're grateful that we have nothing to fear. Even when we feel we have nothing, Lord, we have everything, because you have so graciously given us all of yourself through the gift of your Son and the indwelling of your Spirit. Open our minds and hearts now to hear the truth from your word. May your blessing be upon us. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning. Great to see you. We are continuing in our series, Shepherd, Poet, Fugitive, King, The Life of David. Today, we're looking at Hannah's praise, the story of Hannah's praise. Um, Based on Pew Research Forum data, the group they call the Religiously Unaffiliated now comprise the second largest religious category in North America. Think about that for a second. And the UK has continuously had declining religious affiliation over the years, with about half the population there identifying, uh, identifying with no church or no religious organization at all. In Europe, though, a fascinating trend has begun. And I want to share it with you, because it's really weird. And I thought it was interesting. This uh, trend has emerged due to the prolonged absence of religious influence in daily life. People are creating secular traditions resembling religious rituals without the divine elements. They call these atheist churches Sunday assemblies. These Sunday assemblies have expanded to nearly over uh, 60 locations across Britain and continental Europe, North America, and Australia, and they feature... The, the common elements, group singing, they sing songs from the radio, <laughs> greetings, which I think is a good thing, though some of you I know do not, <laughs> offerings, they take offerings for the group, they have a secular TED Talk style presentation, contemplative moments of reflection, and conclude with fellowship over tea and biscuits. Now, that sounds like every church in America, doesn't it? All without any reference to or acknowledgement of God's existence. And so one wonders what could possibly be driving this need to mimic religion in the culture, in an atheistic culture. I can think of a few reasons. The first being community and belonging. We all need it, and we know we do. The second being purpose and meaning. We all crave and long for some kind of meaning in our life. 
The third thing would be a moral and ethical framework. We all long to know what moral values are really objective. What should we live according to? What are our ethics? Fourthly, emotional well-being, the mutual support of others, and then a sense of transcendence. We all want that transcendent experience, right, of being on the mountain. And then ritual and tradition. Do you know that you've been hardwired for tradition? Tradition is what anchors us to the past, is what tells us who we are today. And then health benefits. Religious people live longer. Religious people are healthier because of their prayer life. So while atheism certainly doesn't provide grounds for thinking our lives have objective purpose and meaning, the atheist must nevertheless live as if his life does have purpose and meaning. While atheism certainly doesn't supply grounds for objective moral values and duties toward one another, the atheist still has to live, nevertheless, according to moral values and duties, as if they are objective, objectively binding. Otherwise, that person will turn into a severe narcissist or worse, a sadist. While atheists cannot truly uh, experience the transcendent because on their view there is no transcendent reality, that denying that fact doesn't erase their need for it because all of these things have been hardwired into the human soul, into our life. And honestly, as I read this, this last week, I thought this is sad and pitiful. And, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I don't mean that as a slam on atheists. I mean, I, they truly are to be pitied. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in God or you're not a believer in Christ, you are welcome here. We are glad you're here. But honestly, there's more. There's more than this material, natural world that God has for you. We want you to know that. And so contrary to this dismal approach to life, we, we came here this morning to be taught the truth by the great theologian, Hannah. She is going to take us to theology and worship school this morning. Hannah will instruct us regarding five things that are crucial to worship, five mindsets or truths that are critical to our worship today. Number one, Hannah's praise is reserved for God alone. So she starts her worship song where every good worship sh song should start with God. Let me ask you a question. Who is worship for? This is a trick question. Worship is for you. It's not for God. God doesn't need your worship. In eternity past, God wasn't thinking to himself, I really need to be worshiped. No, he created us so that we could experience his glory and so that he could share that glory with us and the joy of it. That's why God created worship, but who's worship too? God, God alone. And this is what Hannah does. Her praise is reserved for God alone. We see this in verses 1 and 2. It says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, hold on. If you remember from last week, why does her heart rejoice? If you missed that message, it's because she was barren, so her husband married another woman, Penina. Remember Penina? Her husband married Penina. Penina is fertile. She has lots of children, and then Penina is a mean girl. She rubs it in Hannah's face every chance she gets. And Hannah, while she is down at the festival with her family, practicing formal religion, gets up, goes down to the, t 
temple or the tabernacle steps or the gate, and she begins to cry out from the heart to God to give her a son or give her a child, and God hears her silent prayer, and he does. Now, this is the song she praises God for, so she's rejoicing now, and remember what his name was. Remember his name? Shmuel. We, we translated Samuel, but his name is Shemuel, which means what? God hears. This little boy is the evidence. He's the living manifestation of the fact that God hears prayer. And so she starts out by saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord and Yahweh. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. Now, the horn is the symbol of victory. If you go to battle and you win a victory, at the end of that, what are you going to do? You're going to take your horn and you're going to blow that shofar. And you're going to declare your victory. We won the battle. She says, my horn is lifted up. I won the battle. And my mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. And there is no rock like our God. And so Hannah's worship is directed to God. She rejoices in the Lord. The horn of her salvation is lifted up. Hannah reminds us of God's holiness, which means what? His absolute perfection. He is infinite in all his perfections, morally, spiritually, cognitively, rationally, creatively. There is nothing about God that is imperfect at all. He is holy, righteous. And she reminds us of his uniqueness. There is no God but our God. She reminds us that there is no rock like our rock. He is the infinite, personal, uncaused creator of the universe, and there isn't another one of those. And Hannah knows that God alone is our refuge in time of needs. If you could see it in the Middle East, uh, you would see these cliffs and these cities either built at the base or built on top. And these are citadel cities or fortified cities, and you know why they build them up there? It's because it's really hard to fight uphill. It's really hard to fight on your way up a mountain. And so they would build these rocky, craggy cities. And that's what she's talking about. She's saying, God is my citadel city. God is my city of refuge. God is the one in whom I take refuge. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus faces off with Satan, God's archenemy. And Satan knows, he suspects very strongly, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, now incarnate in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so he assumes that. And, but he wants to test Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 3 or 4, and he comes there, and this is what he tempts him with. One of the temptations is, listen, See all these kingdoms in the world? If you will but bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And notice Jesus' response. Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In that, state, in that statement, Jesus is telling us there is no one else who is worthy of our worship and for the followers of Jesus, there is no other way. We worship and serve the Lord God alone. So why is worshiping anything else or anyone else so detrimental to us? Paul gives us a hint here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He says, there is one God, the Father, from whom 
are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We were made for God. We were made to worship the one true God. That's what we were made for. And when we don't do that, that's, it's, it, it has deleterious effects in our life, lives. So what's our application? What application do we draw from this today? Well, to worship God authentically, we must know God accurately. Her, her worship starts with an accurate knowledge of God. She has spoken rightly about the Lord as far as she knows. And our worship begins with a truer picture of God. God is holy and there is none like Him. God is unique and revealed now in Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does our worship begin with the triune God of the universe? Number two, Hannah's praise serves as a rebuke to the proud and arrogant. Verse three, she cries out, do not boast so proudly or, or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. What's she saying there? She's saying God is everyone's judge. God weighs everyone's actions. He's the judge. And he judges based on knowledge. And his knowledge is always perfect. God isn't going to misjudge you. God is incapable of misjudgment because there isn't anything about you that he doesn't know. And what she wants to say is, listen, you, you boastful, proud people, stop that. Don't let these arrogant words come out of your mouth. You know Penina is standing right there. You really get the sense that verse 3 was crafted for Penina, right? And as a Christian, is it ever appropriate for us to boast? Is it? The Bible says it is. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but as for me, I will never boast about anything, not my religious pedigree, not my achievements, not anything I've ever done for God, not my work, not my degrees, not my education. I would never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Why is it so important for us to only boast in the cross? Because the cross tells me that I am a sinner and God has wrath for sin. The cross also tells me that that wrath was poured out on the one who bore my sins in my place and that God, that he has taken the punishment that would have otherwise been mine. The cross tells me about God's salvation. The cross is the greatest status symbol in the history of the world. Why would I boast in anything else? My degrees or, or my experience or, or my, my, my family history. I mean, why would I boast in anything other than the cross? It's the greatest status symbol in the history of the world because in it, Jesus achieved what none of us could ever do for ourselves. And it's also the cure to a prideful, boastful spirit. When we face the cross, Knowing Jesus has taken our shame, we are invited into the presence, the life-giving presence of God himself. Have you ever experienced a humbling moment? Some of you laugh like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know that one. I, I have. I experienced one. I'll tell you about this story. When I was a kid, as soon as I was old enough, as soon as they could fit the pads on me, I was playing peewee football. And back then, peewee football, we, we, we padded up like they had little man pads. And, and, and the helmets never really fit that you kind of look like a bobblehead. 
And from the time I can remember, I was on the football field playing football. And when I first showed up, they gave me the job or the position of being the fullback because I was a fast little white dude. And, but within a couple of years, they realized, oh, this kid can lead plays, so they asked me to be the quarterback. So all through Pee Wee League and all through uh, Little League, I was the quarterback. When we got up to junior varsity, I tried out. I was still the quarterback. And what, the way they ran practices is varsity and junior varsity would come together at the end. Our field was down and their field was up. So we would go up and meet the varsity team, and we would just scrimmage. And then a lot of us junior varsity players would just get to play those positions against the varsity guys. So, so we went up there, and the quarterback on the varsity team was sick that day. And so the coach said, Kennedy, you're up. I was like, I am? He said, yeah. I was like, okay, I got this. <laughs> so I get into the huddle to call the play, and all the guys are talking. Now, I'm the skinny little junior varsity runt. These, to me, these are human freight trains standing around me. And I go, hey, quiet in my huddle. <laughs> that was my personality. And so I would call the play, and for the next four or five plays, that ball was moving down the field. We beat the other team we were scrimmaging against, and I could hear the coaches talking. I could overhear them talking uh, about how impressed they were with me. And all of a sudden, it just gave me a strut. Like, I kind of already had that, but I was like, yeah. So at the end of practice, uh, we would run 20-yard sprints. And so we line up. Now, I line up with Brian Jackson and Glenn Newitt. They are by far, and everybody knows it, the fastest two guys on the team, black guy, white guy. And I line up with them, and I'm thinking to myself, this is my year. I think I'm going to take them. And so the coach blew the whistle, and I mean to tell you, I took off like a rocket ship. I left them in my wake. I was coming out of that line like a bat out of a bat cave. <laughs> and I got to the other side, and they come trotting in a couple seconds later. I was like, dang, boy, <laughs> yeah, like I'm awesome. And uh, so then next time we get up to the line, coach blows the whistle, same thing. I take off and just leave them in my wake. By this time, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And my brother, who comes in the line right after me, he runs straight up to me and he goes, you stupid idiot. He goes, didn't you hear the, the coach call half speed? And I was like, no, I didn't hear that. Because I was running full speed. And so then I was crushed. I was like, maybe I'm not as fast as I thought I was. So then we get back up to the line, and now the coach overheard my brother chew me out. And so he says, okay, everybody, full speed. I was like, oh. And he blew that whistle, and I mean to tell you, Brian Jackson and, and Glenn Newitt came out of, off of that line like I felt like I had been frozen in time. <laughs> like I just couldn't even move. They just took off at warp factor five. Have you ever really been truly humbled by someone or something? I mean, it just brought low. You thought you were all that, but it turns out you weren't. Listen, nothing will remind you that you are not the mountain as when you meet the mountain. Nothing will strike healthy, rapturous fear, a joy-filled terror in your heart like when you stand close enough to the to feel the spray and the power of a mighty waterfall, which has the energy and the power to crush and drown you, but also is to be admired for its awesomeness. 
It's beauty. And what application do we draw from her lesson today? It's this one. Humility comes to us as a choice or a consequence. Humility comes to us eventually, but it comes either as a choice or a consequence. We can choose to humble ourselves in His presence, or we can wait for God to bring us low. Humility is self-imposed or it is God-imposed, but at some point, it's going to be imposed. And we have the choice. When we have been long nourished in God's presence, it will write our attitudes and remind us of our place and our limits. Listen, the key here is not to develop and write out a very organized regiment of humbling yourself. That's not the key. The key is not to get up every day and say, be humble. Just be humble, Jeff. That's not the key. The key is a soul that has been long nourished in the glorious presence of God through prayer and the Word. And that soul can't help but be humbled. When you're in the presence of a great God, humility is the byproduct. And this is what Hannah teaches us. Number three, Hannah's praise reminds us that God specializes in reversing fortunes. It turns out this is God's specialty. Now, her story is honestly not remotely a surprise, is it? By this time, how could it be? It should be no surprise that by now, God specializes in using the things that other people, the people that others have written off. The woman who is childless all of a sudden becomes strong in the Lord. And this is what she says in verses 4 and 5. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. See how God turns it around? And those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless, Hannah, gives birth to seven, so now apparently she can have more children. But the woman with many sons pines away. Who's that? Poor Penina pines away. You know, you kind of get this sense in the song that she's giving it back to her. And so this is technically what theologians refer to as a great reversal of fortunes. It's the reversal of fortunes theme in the Bible, and you see it from Genesis to Revelation. God has the ability to humble the proud and bring up the weak and the low. Just think of how many examples are in the Scriptures of this. Israel, God chooses a nation of slaves. That's who they were. God chooses a people who were slaves to Egypt, and there's nothing about Israel in of itself, in of themselves, that would warrant God's choice of them or prompt God to, to choose them other than God's own purpose and pleasure. Think about Gideon. Remember that story. God chooses the man who is last in his family, the last in his clan, God chooses a craven, fearful thresher to be a mighty man of valor, to stand against Midian. What about Hannah? God chooses a woman who cannot bear children to bring forth the greatest prophetic archetype in the Old Testament other than Moses himself. All the prophets, think about this for a second, all the prophets in the Old Testament are patterned after two people, Moses and Shemuel, and she's the mom of Samuel. How awesome is that? God has raised her up and lifted her. What about David? We'll encounter him in a few few stories later. God makes David the greatest king of Israel, raising him up from obscurity and insignificance to the most powerful position in Israel. 
He becomes the prototype for a, a future king who will perfect David's reign. And that person is Jesus. Think about Jesus. Jesus was born in a humble little hovel, a little town in Bethlehem. He was raised in humble Nazareth. And you would think since he's God's son that he would be born in a palace, born in opulence, born to a well-to-do, well-connected family. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem, raised in nowhere Nazareth. You know what Nazareth means, Nazareth? It's the word little Netzer, and it means the little David's. This is a community, a super religious community who thinks that they are the offshoots of David. And they are in the middle of nowhere, and Nazareth is on its way to nowhere. And here is God bringing up his son in a town like that. Think of the disciples. Could there be a more obvious example of, of this than Jesus' 12? He takes 12 ordinary fishermen Farmers, a tax collector, a religious zealot, men from the agrarian and the artisan classes, and raises them up as the 12 great apostles of the church. You know what they're called in the book of Revelation? The 12 pillars of my God in his temple. The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are referred to as the pillars of my God in his new temple uh, in the future, in new creation. Why is this God's pattern? Why does God do things like this? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 28 tells us. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Now, let me stop right there. When he says not many of you were wise, he uses this Greek word Sophia. That's where we get our English word Sophia. And that word has to do with going through a guild system where you achieve a sort of education that confers on you the status of a wise teacher. That's what he's talking about here. Really interesting. You can look this up later. Uh, You can look up the phrase, the ignorant book collector. And this will illustrate the Greek's mindset toward those who did not have Sophia. This was a man who had spent and amassed uh, a, a book collection like no other. And he had spent his life's fortune on all these scrolls, and he kept them in his library, and he was able to get up before people and read very fluently in excellent Greek all of these books that he had collected. And then the Greek philosopher comes by and says, you're ignorant and you're uneducated. Not because you can't read, not because you haven't collected a bunch of books, but because you weren't educated in the philosophical guild. You're not a wisdom teacher. You don't have Sophia. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's like, not many of you were trained philosophers from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing that which is viewed as something. Notice God's pattern. Why does God do this? Because God receives the glory when weak things are strengthened by him. And the application we draw from this is that in God's eyes, the worth of a human soul is never determined by worldly rank or riches. Never. In God's economy, the measure of a person is not found in their titles and their resources or their achievements, but in God's favor and in his grace and in his loving kindness. God specializes in choosing people like Hannah, and she knows it. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel kind of worthless sometimes? 
Do you? Do you feel sometimes kind of useless? I do. I have times in my life where I feel, frankly, what am I even doing here? I feel so useless. Let me ask you another question. Do you know that God specializes in accomplishing His purpose through people just like you? (laughs) This is what God does. He is the God who breaks the bow of those who are smug in their own resourcefulness, and He strengthens feeble arms, and He satisfies the spiritually hungry, and He chooses the foolish and the despised things of this world, the things that are not to bring to shame, the things that think they are. That's God's, that's the way God works. Number four, Hannah's praise inspires faith. Hannah's praise instills faith in us. Just look at all she says that God has done and can do. 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8, she says, The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to hell, Sheol, and he raises others up in the resurrection is what she's referring to. And the Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. Who does Hannah say promotes and who does Hannah say brings to poverty? God does. And so she is teaching us about biblical prosperity. Understand there is a biblical version of the doctrine of prosperity and abundance. And it is to be contrasted from the false doctrine of false prosperity. Do you know what that is? You probably, you have seen this if you've been watching TV, scanning the channels and seeing like, you know, like the TV guys, the preachers with the hair and the the suit, and they're promising you, if you send my ministry $10, God is obligated to give you 100 back. Or if you send me $100, God is on the hook. He is obligated to give you 1,000 back tenfold. That's, that's the false prosperity gospel. And here she is teaching us biblical prosperity. She is telling us God is a God of abundance. God is a God who answers prayer. God is a God who hears and he answers. And God lifts us out of our poverty. But she also recognizes that when she was in a state where she did not have children, that happened on God's watch. And now that she is able to have many children, that also happens on the sovereign watch of God. And so listen, Hannah's praise infuses us with faith. He is the God who can reverse our outcome, the God who supplies our needs, the God who Uh, exalts the humble and humbles the proud. God alone restores and lifts us. He bestows honor upon us. We can trust God to do it, and we can trust him to be sovereign in it. So what's our application today? Well, God's silence is not his absence. Never equate God's silence with his absence. Just because he isn't answering your prayer Just because it feels like the answer isn't coming or he's not speaking or he's not giving you guidance doesn't mean he isn't there. And just like we said last week, if you don't have the answer to your prayer, prayer is the answer. And the reason why prayer is the answer until you get the answer is because of God's presence. When we pray and we seek the Lord, we practice the presence of God. And so that is the key. Never mistake God's silence for his absence. Fifthly, Hannah's praise comforts the faithful and warns the proud of their fate. Boy, (laughs) 
Now, notice how she frames this. Notice how she frames this. She, she comforts the faithful and then warns the proud of a sure fate. Let's pick up in verse 8. She says, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. Now, that's the God of creation. Verse 9, he guards the steps of his faithful ones. That's the God of providence. The God who creates the world oversees the world. The God who is the creator God is also the God of providence who is supervising the whole thing, the whole story. And she reminds us that God safeguards our steps. Psalm 37, 23, it says, a person's steps are established by the Lord and he takes pleasure in his way. And though that person falls down, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. Aren't you comforted by that promise that your steps are ordered of the Lord? God has planned your steps and when you try and you fail and you fall down, God is there to support you and lift you up with his mighty outstretched hand. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 tells us this, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. When did God choose you? When has God chosen us? Before the foundations of the world, before the world was set on its foundations and that brings us comfort but because we know many other plans. We have lots of plans for our lives, don't we? We make plans, but God is the one who orders our steps. And it's a very comforting thought to know that there is a God who is running this show, who is running things. But Hannah also reminds us that just as God in his providence cares for us and orders our steps, he also shatters those who oppose him. Look at verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered he will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah knows that this almighty, all-knowing, holy God is a God who watches over the faithful. He watches over his people, but he also brings low those who are proud through his wrath. In Psalm 711, the psalmist tells us God is a righteous judge and, and a God who shows his wrath every day. Jeremiah 10.10 tells us, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living and eternal king. And the earth quakes at his wrath and the nations cannot endure his fury. And John 3.36, we know John 3.16, don't we? Which says what? Ah, see, you're saying it in your head right now. But John 3.36 says, the one who believes in the son has eternal life. Don't you want eternal life? Yes, believe in the son, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him or her. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness, what do they try to do? Push the truth down. They try to suppress it and keep it under. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Because of your hardened and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The Lord is everyone's judge. And, and this is our application from this. Listen, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for you, no one, nothing could be against you. But if God is against you, who could be for you? With God in our corner, no foe can prevail. If God is your ally, you are more than a conqueror in Christ. When God is your advocate, who could accuse you before God? 
But if you find yourself at enmity with God, opposing his purposes and his plan and his gospel, if God's wrath is against us, then where could we take refuge? Listen, the only refuge God has provided for us from his wrath is the cross. It's the only place we could take refuge. And if God has provided that and we reject the cross, there's nothing left but God's judgment. This is true of God. And I want to suggest to you that any teaching that denies God's justice for wrongdoing just is a half a picture of God, which is a wrong picture. Now, let's suppose that Judge Oliver, who's a, in our congregation, Justin Oliver, who's a judge, uh, let's suppose that he and I were really good friends. We're pretty good friends. And we were out for dinner one night, and we had a very nice steak dinner at the Ribbon Chop House that he paid for. We spent an hour and a half, two hours just talking, talking about life and kids and, and philosophy and all kinds of good stuff. And we left, and I just got in my car and thought, Justin is the best guy. I totally have a man crush on Justin because he's got great hair and he's got great shoes. I wish I could be more like Justin. So I'm thinking about how much I like Justin, and Justin's probably in his car thinking about how cool I am too, Right. And then as I'm driving down the road, I see a liquor store, and I think, I think I'm going to rob that liquor store. So I pull up in the driveway, and I take my 357 Magnum out of the glove compartment, and I go in, and I stick up the store, and I rob it, and then I go home, and I put on Netflix. And then the police come knocking on my door. They knock on my door, and they're like, hey, uh, uh, is this you on this video right here robbing this store with the 357 Magnum? I'm like, uh, sure, yeah. And they're like, oh, by the way, here's your wallet. You left it at the scene with your identity, and that's how we found your address. Now, they got me dead to rights. I am guilty, so I am arrested, processed, arraigned, and now I have to appear before my good friend Justin Oliver. Now, for the sake of this hypothetical, let's imagine he's a criminal judge, that he sees criminal cases, and let's imagine he doesn't have to recuse himself, because in the real world, he would. And though as a friend, he may wish me well, and he may have warm feelings toward me, it would be immoral for him to judge me not according to the law. It would be unjust for him to say, well, he's my friend, I'm just going to let him go. No, he loves me, but he's also my judge. And understand, that's God too. That's a picture of God. If you were, if God were just suddenly to just manifest his, the full beam of his presence right before you, and you were to encounter the awesome glory of God such that you hit your face in worship, listen, you would experience a being who loves you through and through, and you would have never experienced love like that. A God who loves you more than words can describe, but he is your judge. That same God justly judges our sin. We also answer to him. We are held accountable to him. And Hannah knows this. God is a God who weighs things rightly. He does so because he does it based on his knowledge, on his perfect holy nature and his perfect knowledge. And God is for you. Who could be against you? But if God is opposing you, if God is your problem, if God is your problem, you have no more urgent matter to attend to. Only Jesus can be our refuge. Number six, Hannah's praise anticipates our need for a king. 
This will be the first point of next week's message. The last line in the song, verse 10, is that he will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Remember what the problem was in Judges. Do you remember what the problem was? I said it several times. It ended the book. The book of Judges ends this way. And so there was no king in Israel, and everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. That's a description of sin. That's what happens when we're kingless. That's, where, that's what happens when King Jesus is not on the throne in our lives. What happens is that we live according to our own rule and our own law. We live, we do whatever we think is right in our own minds. And listen, sin is, God's salvation from sin is not just salvation from bad things you've done. So you don't have to carry the guilt anymore. It is that. It's not just salvation from stuff in your life that's going to wreck your life and make you unhappy. It's that too. But God's salvation in Christ from sin is salvation from self-rule. That's what it is. It's salvation because that's what sin is. Sin is choosing to go my way, not God's way. Sin is me disobeying his commands, the commands that the sovereign king has decreed and laid down for me. And this is why you don't just need Jesus, your atoning sacrifice. Oh boy, you need that. But you need Jesus, the king. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's bring it all together this morning. Hannah teaches us that accurate worship matters. It matters, folks, what God we think we're worshiping. And that in order to worship God authentically, we must know God accurately. She teaches us that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Humility is coming, and it's coming as a result of a choice or a consequence. And she reminds us that God can turn our situation around. We are reminded that in God's eyes, the worth of every human being is determined by his grace and his favor and his love, not by our worldly rank or riches or achievements. And Hannah instructs us that God's silence is not his absence. Right now, God may not be answering the prayer or it may be a, an answer you frankly don't care for, but God is present. God is with you. And he stays closer than a brother. And she also reminds us that if God is for us, <laughs> there's no foe on earth that can be against us. But if you find yourself against God, you have no greater exigency. You have no greater urgent matter to attend to than to right yourself with a holy God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story. Hannah is amazing. This prayer is amazing. This prayer is a theology lesson. We thank you for her right and accurate understanding of you. We thank you for the, the example that she is of faith and the faith that is instilled in us. We are inspired to trust you. We are inspired to seek you. And we're inspired, most of all, to know you, to know you in the glory of your presence. And Lord, we confess our sin. We confess the fact that the only refuge we can take this morning is in your cross, is in your Son. You provided that for us. 
as a way for us to escape the coming wrath, and we are grateful for it. We thank you for it. And if you're here this morning and you've not done that before, you've not taken refuge in the cross, will you do it right now? Don't let another minute pass before you embrace Jesus as your Savior and your Lord right now. Father, we thank you for this and all these things. And together we say, amen. Thank you.